The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing to deliver great results? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is Kate Ebner. Good morning, and thank you for joining me this morning. This is a show that I have been looking forward to for months, I cannot tell you. Uh, Our show today is about disruption and how to make disruption a catalyst for creativity and innovation rather than just something that you're experiencing um, in a reactive way. You know, in recent years at the Institute for Transformational Leadership, we've been following the disruption of industry after industry from the breakdown of the financial sector to the big questions that um, people in the field of law have about how their services will be engaged and delivered to the reinvention of higher education and, and beyond. We've been in conversations about disruptive change, the kind of change that isn't invited, often isn't expected, and that actually can lead to transformation, whether you like it or not, whether you wanted it or not. My guest today is Todd Yellen, Vice President of Product Innovation at Netflix. Todd's job is to understand what Netflix's 62 million global users are watching and what they would want to watch. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. We're up to over 70 million members now. Oh, 70 million. Thank you. Yeah, it's a it's a real pleasure to have you here, Todd. And, and I think that... Um, you know, I, when I we think about disruption in the inter- entertainment industry, um, executives everywhere will point to Netflix and say, "Here is the catalyst for change." And you know, I know that um, just last week you had a huge announcement that Netflix is going global, and you know, and and the paradigm shifting continues um, for Netflix. I thought before we dive into all of that and and about how Netflix is actually changing the entertainment industry and actually the way viewers are experiencing um, content. I'd love to just introduce our, our guest to you a little bit more. And you have such an interesting job, Todd, at one of the most innovative companies in the entertainment industry. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to be where you are. Um, sure. So um, I started out passionate about movies. Um, everything from watching a tremendous number of movies to, you know, I was 12 years old outside of New York uh, shooting movies in the hills of Long Island. So I've been very interested in both the filmmaking side and also the viewing side and also the critical side. Many years ago, I was a critic for a tiny division of News Corp back in New York. Um, and so back in 1999, during the Internet Gold Rush, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, and I moved from New York to San Francisco. We worked for a startup, and 
It was about family entertainment and delivering family entertainment over the web and guidance to parents and so forth. And so at that time, video on the Internet, if, you know, for those who remember this, was like a postage-sized stamp. It would constantly rebuffer. So the idea of streaming video, streaming like cinema-quality video over the Internet, was really only a glint in a bunch of people's eyes. Um, after that, I went off, I made an independent film, I got out of the internet for a while, and it was at the end of 2005, when Netflix was all about being um, a DVD company, only in the U.S., only about a website, and only about delivering envelopes over the mail with your latest DVD in it, uh, that I, when I joined the company, and I moved up from L.A. to San Francisco, or the Bay Area at the time, we're in Silicon Valley, and... Um, since then, I've been overseeing the product experience at Netflix for almost exactly a decade now. That's, it's, a, it's a great story, and I, I love that it starts with you really loving the movies. Um, and, you know, it's incredible to find yourself um, right in the center of so much radical change. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, the company at, at, the, at the time was selling DVDs. I remember getting those envelopes in the mail and... <laughs> And it, it, even then, it felt very innovative, but but where it's gone is you know just just unbelievable. I'd love it if you could just give our listeners a chance to sort of catch up with Netflix. Can you just tell us a little bit of a timeline, you know, from the founding days and from those envelope days of the DVDs mm -hmm. all the way to the present? What have been some of the the big moments in the business? Sure, good question. So early on, before I joined the company. Um, they could have called themselves, and Reed is our CEO and also founder, and Reed could have named the company um, DVDs by Mail, and nothing else was called that, and this was actually the company was formed around that time of an Internet bubble. And so the reason it wasn't called DVD by Mail, and it was called Netflix instead, is because the vision was beyond the short-term because the founders, Reed and others of the company, realized that if Netflix was going to be transcendent and have a long shelf life as a company and do more than just deliver DVDs by the mail, because like any medium, there was an expiration date around DVDs. And even though it didn't look that way, in 19, you know, when the company, company was founded in 97, in 1999 it shifted to what people remember who got the DVD service, which was all-you-can-eat DVDs, um, it, via the mail. And so at that time, DVD hadn't even hit its peak yet. And so this was a time where they were just becoming ascendant medium and technology and so forth. But Netflix was named because eventually it was realized that the better way to go was beyond just getting physical things in the U.S. mail. It was streaming it over the Internet and instant click and play. So that was a huge realization one of the first books, in fact, I believe the first book that a bunch of people were reading, including myself, when I got to Netflix, and this was early in 2006, was Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. And the whole idea of that book is how hard it is for an incumbent company, a leader in any kind of business, to pivot onto a, at that time, lesser technology, because there's basically a gilded cage that a lot of companies get in, where they're very profitable, they're doing really well with a particular type of product or technology, 
but they can be easily disrupted because for them to go into a lesser technology that is ascending and will eventually beat the incumbent technology, that's a really hard shift for a company that's going to arguably hurt many times, hurt the company in the short term. So even at that time, at the beginning of 2006, before we shifted into streaming, it was realized that, hey, we've got to lean forward, we've got to keep on looking at the future, and especially the pace that things run in Silicon Valley and in technology nowadays, it was super important to not just rest on the laurels of, wow, we're really disrupting Blockbuster, the giant in DVDs, and you know, it's really changing with shipping them over the mail and not just getting them in you know, your local store. That wasn't enough, and that wasn't a strong enough vision that would sustain over a long period of time. You know, thank you for that that sort of um, visionary beginning. Um, and you know, you mentioned that you could have been called, you know, um, you know, DVDs are us or something like that. But yeah, DVDs um, in the mail. Yeah. So tell tell us about about the name Netflix. Where did that come from? So it's just more descriptive of what it is. But mm-hmm. to tell you the truth, it's not the perfect description of what the company does now. Which is kind of mm-hmm. funny, but now the brand is stuck. And a name of a company could either be entirely random and just a word that sticks to a company. I mean, Google is just a different spelling of a tremendously big number, but it really doesn't have to do with search. So Netflix is somewhat descriptive, net over the Internet, Flex, meaning movie, is a very colloquial term for movies. It's not understood outside the U.S. typically. But why I'm saying that even that name isn't broad enough is because if you think about Netflix now, what we've become, movies is an important part of what we do, but two-thirds of what's streamed on Netflix are TV shows. So it's not mm-hmm. Net TV, it's Netflix, Net movies. Fortunately, Flix isn't the term that's very used, and we've kind of... Um, co-opted that term, and now when you think of Flix, you think of Netflix, and you think of what we do, which is streaming TV shows and movies over the internet. Thank you. You know, the, the, um, the description of, the, of Netflix today, I'll share it for our listeners, is that Netflix is the world's leading internet television network with over 70 million members in over 190 countries, enjoying more than 125 million hours of TV shows and movies per day, including original series, that's content you're creating, documentaries, and feature films. Members can watch as much as they want, anytime, anywhere, and on nearly any internet-connected screen. Members can play, pause, and resume watching, all without commercials or commitments. And as I read that description, I I feel like we could probably just take that apart and look at all of the kinds of innovation that are described in it. Um, But I want to go back to the topic, Todd, of disruption and and innovation and and really ask you, you know... um, what do you think, you know, what, what, what kinds of disruption has Netflix delivered to the industry? Can you, can you just give us some examples of ways that your approach has disrupted business as usual and really changed the industry? Okay, and the good question, another good question, and in multiple ways. So, you know, I go back to those early roots. First, it disrupted around DVDs. There was the big, back in that time, the big competitor, the dominant player in the industry in the U.S., and like I said, we were only a U.S. company back then, was Blockbuster. And basically, Blockbuster had lots of chances 
there was an example that's a good innovator's dilemma story because there was Blockbuster and they had a chance to become a large investor in Netflix when Netflix was struggling very early on as a new company. Then Blockbuster had a chance to really go in big and go bigger than Netflix in terms of DVDs by mail. But they didn't go in early enough because they were doing well. They were comfortable with what they were doing. When they eventually weighed into the battle, um, Netflix was already entrenched and already in the consumer's mind. When we went into streaming, it was our first streaming product was in early 2007. And what it was was just a, an add-on to the DVD product. The technology was still early. It was only on a PC. So you can watch it on your laptop, you can watch it on the website, and the content was very thin. We had a few good shows that we were licensing at the time from NBC. I remember uh, 30 Rock was on the service, Heroes was on the service, but it wasn't that varied, the content, and that deep. But that was the beginning as a free add-on. How we continued to disrupt and add on to that story was a big challenge was people don't watch the majority of their video viewing on a laptop. They watch the majority of their viewing on the modern hearth, hearth, sorry, in the home, which is the TV screen, you know, in front of the couch. And so to get Netflix onto the TV became a big goal. In fact, a huge rallying cry around the company circa 2008 through 2011 or so was maybe even 2012 was device ubiquity. Get onto every viewable device we can most importantly, get onto the TV screens of our consumers. So that wasn't easy because there wasn't an ecosystem set up. You know, if you're going to watch on a website, the web was equated with watching something on your computer. You know, mobile wasn't even big back then in terms of watching there. This was early, this was early days. And so we went out into the industry and we started telling a story that was very different than folks heard, which is we started talking about Internet TV. And so we went to companies um, like LG, the big consumer electronics TV maker based in Korea, and we started going to Microsoft, the Xbox division, and those were the first two big deals we made. We got onto our two first ways to get onto the TV were through an LG Blu-ray player that if connected up to your TV can also stream Netflix and you can get the Netflix app, and also via the Xbox. So if you had an Xbox, a gaming system, and it was tied up into your TV, you could also stream Netflix, and there was the Netflix app. There was no such thing as having apps on your TV. Now we take it for granted. You have lots of apps on your TV. There's Netflix, there's YouTube. In the U.S., there's Hulu, there's Amazon Prime, etc. And then there's all kinds of other apps that you can see. But back then, that wasn't existent. So we had to really, from a business development perspective, from a technology perspective, and from a user interface perspective, figure out how to get consumers and other businesses comfortable with that conceit. Once it took off on those first couple of devices, then we started having people knock on our door, whether it was Sony, whether it was Samsung, eventually Apple got into the game, where we started getting towards that rallying cry of fulfilling the promise of device ubiquity. And that was a huge disruption. And to get that huge disruption, often you have to pay what we call the pioneer tax. The pioneer tax is the technology and business development tax it takes to break to paradigm shift and to be the first to get something done. Once we proved how to get apps onto a TV and showed the technology was very viable, 
then competitors start flooding into that ecosystem, and then you have your hands full with all kinds of choices on the TV, not just Netflix. There are like five other, I could keep on going with innovations we did around the content side, what we're doing now with global content, but occasionally I want to hear your voice and I need to take a breath. <laughs> I hope you're breathing right now because we're going to have you talk again very quickly. We're going to take a break in about three minutes, Todd, but I, I think listening to you, you know, it's it, it's breathtaking actually to think about the the kinds of innovation, the pace of change, um, you know, the, the, um, the, the, even, even sort of like what we were reading in 2006, what we, our mantra in 2008, you know, just thinking about how this team of people has really, um, considered what, what they'd like to see happen, what we all would love to have, and then figured out how to do it and, you know, paid that pioneer tax along the way. Um, I wonder if in the couple minutes we have, if you could just give us maybe a couple other examples of disruption. Mm-hmm. So a big one that's, you know, afoot right now, which we're in the middle of trying to really shift how things are done in the entertainment side, is on the content side, which is the way the world has worked traditionally has very, been very regional when it comes to content. If there's, I'll talk about on the TV front, but the movie front has strong parallels to this as well. On the TV show front, if there's a hit U.S. TV show, doesn't matter if it's drama, sci-fi, comedy, whatever it is, typically has played in the U.S., and then it's been regionally licensed, sometimes a year or two later, to different places around the world. So you'd, you'd go to places, I don't, it doesn't matter if it's Germany or Sweden or Singapore, and if they wanted to see U.S. shows, they would typically get it a year or two later because that's just the way the rights and the licensing work and so forth. And they would get it different times and they won't even necessarily get a show if there was no one that would pick it up, no matter how popular it was in the U S. And by the way, that was neutral about things traveling in the other direction, many directions. Mm. And what we're trying to do is change the whole model to global licensing, um, where when something is created, any kind of show, it's instantly available all around the world. And that's why our announcement last week was huge and an important part of what the goals of where we want to take this thing, which is, look, why shouldn't someone in, whether it be Sao Paulo or Stockholm or Detroit or Mexico City, watch that same show um, whenever they want and not to be dealing with archaic licensing situations where different studios have territorial areas that are in charge of licensing to the Middle East, licensing to Southeast Asia, but at the same time, just licensing all the shows and movies everywhere at the same time. And so that, when we make our own original shows, there's many reasons that drove us to you know, start creating our own Netflix originals. But one of them is to have the control that when we want to release a show, whether it be Daredevil, whether it be House of Cards, whether it be Orange is the New Black, whatever it is, we just flip a switch and everyone gets it at the same time and is able to watch it. That makes a lot more sense to us than the old model of depends on your rights, depends on the local part of the studio, whether they're going to license it, when they're going to license it, how it's going to work, when a linear carrier is going to pick it up and so forth. Wow. So the whole idea of global viewing, global licensing, that's something that for originals, you know, it's great and we're starting to push 
the community to realize the value of even when they license content to us that we don't create to license it to us globally as opposed to territorially. That's phenomenal. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. We're going to take a break right now. My guest today is Todd Yellen. He is uh, talking to us about disruption and innovation, uh, sort, of, sort of an inside view from Netflix. I'm Kate Ebner. You're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, and we'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome back once again. As you know, I'm talking today with Todd Yellen, who has spent his career dedicated to film and television entertainment. He's been really at the forefront of innovation. Um, he's, a, he's a director, a writer, a documentarian, and absolutely an innovator. So, Todd, welcome back. And I want to jump in where we left off. Um, we were talking about ways that Netflix has really changed the game. And um, I remember a conversation you and I had where we were talking about um, disrupting the industry, and you said, yeah, but... 
realized that as a company, we've actually had to disrupt ourselves and learn how to be the, you know, be the disruptors of our own thinking. And I wanted to begin this segment with that idea. Um, and I'm thinking in particular about leaders out there in all kinds of industries who are experiencing and, and almost maybe feeling like they're at the mercy of a lot of change happening to them. Whereas I really hear when you talk about Netflix, a different relationship to change. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what it means to disrupt yourself and how this all works at Netflix. Yeah. So, um, part of the disrupting ourselves is the philosophy of leaning forward and leaning far forward. And, and when you lean forward, you have to realize that sometimes you're going to lean so far forward, you're going to fall on your face. And it's how you deal with falling on your face that's an important cultural attribute on whether you'll have an appetite to lean forward again. So if a company, you know, leans forward, pushes themselves, falls on their face, has some kind of, you know, they didn't succeed on a product launch, they didn't succeed on a particular idea, and then they start pointing fingers, blaming people, letting people go based on that, it's going to be very counterproductive because they're going to be very scared to do something in the, you know, in the next step. And if, you know, if the leaders say, no, 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 they won't be scared. We got rid of the people who would deal with that. Everyone else is going to be fearing for their neck, and they're not going to want to lean forward. They're not going to be willing to speak up and so forth. So at Netflix, we actually almost celebrate. In fact, I'd go as far as say something. We do celebrate failure as well as success because it's, if you learn from the failure, if you lean forward and you understand we leaned forward, we went too far, or we went in the wrong direction, it didn't work out. What did we learn from this? And you even appreciate the people who are daring enough to go a little far or push things a little hard. So at Netflix, we have a very debateful culture that a lot of us really promote and keep on instilling in everyone new who joins the company to speak up, to really don't worry so much about hierarchy, but we want to hear what's on people's minds and we want to give them enough freedom to pursue or sometimes follow their nose into an interesting area to see if it really works for the company or not. Is it, um, is it hard to find people who are comfortable with that? Or, you know, how do you, how do you get past the initial instinct that many people have to sort of try to, try to get an A, you know, figure out what works and not take risks? So, you know, it's, it's funny. I like your want to get an A you get, we have a lot of, you know, high-performing people here. We pride ourselves in trying to keep a very high talent density in Netflix, no matter how big we get. Um, and, yeah, you're right. A lot of people, their instinct when you get high-performing people is, how do I get an A? Um, and we want to make it super clear that the way you get an A isn't always by taking the safe bet. It's taking interesting bets. It's mixing up. It doesn't matter if you're working in product, which is my side of the business, and, you know, in my side of the business, it's about designing what Netflix looks like and all the devices we're on, personalizing and using sophisticated algorithms to put the right content in front of the right people at the right time. Whether you're in my world, whether you're in finance, whether you're in content, betting on the latest Netflix t um, original TV series, you know, the, ever, we're all encouraged and we encourage each other to lean forward and to make bets. And the way, you know, we make that clear is we're not shy about sharing our culture and what Netflix is about, and this culture isn't for everyone. So around seven years ago, I believe it was, we published out to the world the Netflix culture deck, which went viral, 
and a lot of people started reading it. People who had nothing to do with our business were just reading it as an interesting case study around, you know, what makes a successful company tick, what does Netflix specifically do around its culture. And so that's out there. Anyone can go to the Netflix, um, you can look up Netflix Culture Deck on Google, or you can go to the Netflix job site, which is attached to our website, look up our Culture Deck, and you can read everything, you know, that we stand for. So you can see, you know, it's, if this is the right kind of thing for you. I love it. And that's really, that's really helpful and a great recommendation for people who want to learn more about this. Um, so you've just been, I'm, I'm calling it sort of like paradigm busters, you know, and thinking so much, you know, I'm curious to hear a little bit about Todd, how decisions are made, you know, how are the, you know, we know the vision, how do we execute against that vision and what, what gets prioritized? Can you say uh-huh. a little about that? So if you went and saw a culture deck, you'll see one of the most often, most off-sighted phrases is freedom and responsibility. And that's something that anyone that works in Netflix is just going to be aware that that's a, you know, a real foundation of the Netflix culture is freedom and responsibility. So what that means is we try to push decision-making down as much as we can. It's not the, you know, it doesn't start with Reed, our CEO, who's making all these decisions, and he has to, you know, say yay or nay to whatever's going on, whether it be in product or content or marketing. It's really about empowering people, finding fully formed adults who have, you know, have good experience and who are willing to, like I said, lean forward and make some interesting decisions to push the envelope and try things and be experimental in their approach. So what it means to have freedom and responsibility is it takes a lot of discipline because it is, you know, I wish, you know, I could sit here at my job overseeing a lot of the product experience and say, yeah, I like the way that looks and I think we should do it that way and over here and people could come to me and I would end up being a real bottleneck because the more you push decision-making up as opposed to down, the more you're going to slow yourself down and the more you're not going to, you know, have a variety of thi- diversity of thinking and diversity of approaches, and you're going to be much more monolithic. And so you want to come up with ways to measure what is success. On the product side, in my direct world, success, we've been, you know, we constantly debate over what is success and what are the key metrics, and we try to keep it as simple as we can. And the key metrics in, in my department and what we think a lot about is retention, and acquisition. And so retention is, we're a subscription business. We're a straightforward business model. It's all about people paying us, you know, on average, something like eight ninety nine a month in the U.S. and, you know, whatever local currency you have, paying eight ninety nine a month, and we want them to pay that month over month. And so um, if they're eight ninety nine or they're on an eleven ninety nine plan, whatever plan they are, we want them to come back, or nine ninety nine. we want them to come back next month and, you know, want to stick with Netflix and get a lot of value out of us and be excited about our product. And so whenever we try stuff, we're looking at how does it affect retention? Our customers, are we pleasing our members? Are they sticking around at Netflix? So it's a really clear metric, and when you have really clear metrics like retention, then you can say, hey, I could say that people on my team, why don't you, tr- you know, try whatever you want, and let's see how it moves the core metrics of the company so that empowers them and empowers me to push decision-making down to let them try what they want. And then we can see how it affected what we care about in the business. 
That, that's great. That's very, very interesting and, and helpful. I'm curious, Todd, what's a, what's a typical work week like for people at Netflix? I mean, what, what, I mean, I, I realize that's a, a question that could be answered as many ways as there are people at Netflix. But I mean, is it a company that's, you know, back to the culture? Are people meeting all the time? Is it lots of um, independent work? I mean, what's the, how do things get done? We do tend to have a lot of meetings, and I'll tell you why. We we have another thing, um, another credo in our culture decks called context, not control. What that means is, you know, the not control we already talked about, giving people a lot of freedom to try things. But the context part is super important, which is transparency of information across the company. We don't hoard information. A lot of companies get very political, and they're hoarding information, and information becomes the currency, and people hold it because if they hold that information, then they feel that that empowers them and gives them an edge, and they get competitive with their colleagues. And our thing is the opposite, which is we're very aggressive at sharing cross-functionally how are things going, how are things going um, in terms of how many subscribers we have, how are we retaining them, how many subscribers do we have in different countries, how are the different Netflix shows doing, how many people are watching them, Um, what's going on with different product experiments we try, what happens when we automatically start auto-playing from one episode to the next, or what happens if instead of still images in the user interface, we start using video to promote the different pieces of content, like whatever it is, you know, that's stuff we do in my department, whatever goes on across the company, people have access to, and so they can just go into you know, a Google Docs file and read about everything that they want to to their heart's content. We're also very aggressive at sharing the financials around the company and so forth. So these are the kinds of things, this kind of context comes with the price of you are in meetings, you know, hearing what's going on with the rest of the company and so forth, but you know, we think it's worth it. And I'll tell you about one other thing, how different internal technologies can really lead to paradigm shifts in how you operate. We used to be, when I got to Netflix, we were very much a PowerPoint culture, like a lot of companies are. Prepare a PowerPoint, present it out to a crowd, people can ask questions after you do your presentation, et cetera, et cetera. So my first few years here, I became, you know, like many people are in this, you know, different business worlds a master of PowerPoint, you know, oh, it had great animations that got lean and mean with great images, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what we found out as Netflix, that wasn't the best way to create great context, great collaboration. So we jumped on the Google Docs technology, um, the whole shareable documents, the whole idea of write something up, open it up to other people to allow to comment on it, to edit on it, et cetera. And then you get a lot more collaborative. So you'll only rare, you know, rarely see a PowerPoint presentation. It happens. But I would say we have around 10%, you know, one-tenth the number of PowerPoint presentations than 10 years ago when I started here. It's much more now about living documents that get created, that everyone jumps in, everyone's editing, everyone's giving feedback. And that has led to a lot, of, a lot more transparency and a lot more collaboration. You mentioned the combination freedom and responsibility, and and I I think you've just really done a great job of describing the freedom and the transparency and the sort of the invitation to um, to, to take risks and to really do 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 your own ideas, do what you can do, 
to move the dial. I'm curious about the responsibility side. How does accountability work? Responsibility is, you know, I don't want to give the idea that Netflix is one big lab and people are doing experiments all over the place and they might be related, you know, or they might not be related to the core business. The difference between a Netflix and some other companies that are doing a lot of interesting things across a lot of different fields is we're monomaniacally focused on delivering great entertainment to our members and keep on expanding their, the ability of the consumer to control when they watch, where they watch, how much they watch, and make that easier and easier. So with such a strong focus, you know, no one at Netflix is, you know, there isn't an engineer sitting here spending 20% of their time figuring out how to add to the self-driving car industry or someone trying to figure out how to beg, better target advertising to members since we don't use ads in Netflix. It's very much about, so the responsibility part is serving our members, serving the bigger business on where we're going in terms of entertainment and being very focused in that area. So when I talked about the importance of metrics before and how, you know, if you understand the metrics, you understand the business and our, all our metrics are tied to consumer, customer satisfaction because we're a subscription business, that's the responsibility part. So if we see someone is not working on that stuff, well, that's a miss because what does that have to do? And that's part of the debate also, and that's part of the transparency. We're very open about feedback to each other. And if someone is working on something that seems to be far afield of what we're about, we're going to debate it and we're going to question it. Thank you. That's, that's really, really great and helpful to hear. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I think about the, the culture you're describing and sort of the proactivity, the, the sort of forward-looking nature of your culture and your business. And I think about other fields, Todd, where, um, as I said before, people feel like, I think of higher education, for example, where the way people are learning and accessing knowledge is changing very parallel in some ways to the entertainment industry. And what does that mean for the tenure system? You know, what does that mean for, you know, what is a student? What is is higher education? You know, it's a big, huge questions. Um, we only have a minute before we take a break again, but I'm curious just to hear if you had any advice for people who aren't in your industry but who are really needing to get out front or to, to lean forward, as you were saying. Yeah, I mean, I, education, I can go on about that just as a layman around that field, but you're right. Talking about someplace that's ripe for disruption, I have a, you know, a really close friend of mine who I used to work with who works for Coursera, and they're really trying to shake up the education system and how people can, you know, democratize how people can access the best professors and so forth, the way we've tried, you know, we've been doing that a long time around the entertainment field. So it it takes a strong vision. It takes the right people eager around you. And it takes, you know, a thick skin to, you know, stay focused and to go up against, you know, very strong not only strong, entrenched interests, which is maybe the harder part, but also a lot of prevailing conventional wisdom around how things should be done as opposed to what's the best way to do things. I think that's a great a great um, comment and a great uh, way for us to close this segment. Um, this is Kate Ebner. You're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership 
My guest, Todd Yellen, is helping us understand disruption and innovation through the lens of Netflix. We'll be right back after this break. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network founded in 2012 the institute for transformational leadership itl is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. the markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. I'm glad you're with us today. I'm talking with Todd Yellen and you know, since Netflix launched its streaming service back in 2007, they have expanded globally with a big announcement last week um, about their global business. They started in Canada, then it's Latin America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Japan. They include 60 countries at this point. And um, Todd, I'd love to spend some time in this last part of our show um, taking in and, and working on understanding the implications of um being able to access Netflix globally. And so I want to I just invite you to help us understand 
not only what it what it means from an individual consumer perspective or a viewer perspective, but but what's the what's the new world we're in as a result of this? Yeah, this is. I I couldn't be more excited. When we were at we were in Las Vegas last week at the Consumer Electronics Show, where we made the announcement of something we've been keeping hush hush for all year, which is, as you mentioned, we made our way to sixty countries over the last few months. The most recent launches before our big announcement last week was we launched in Japan a few months ago, and then after that we launched in Spain, Italy, and Portugal. And we are working hard in those countries, added on to all the other countries we've been in. But we decided, you know, true to our philosophy of lean forward, of iterate, of don't be afraid to, you know, fail, stumble, and then improve and learn, and then make the whole product and the whole offering better, we said, let's just do it in one fell swoop. So we launched, we went from 60 to 190 countries very quickly. And some of those countries, you know, major big places in the world, whether it's... um Taiwan, South Korea, Poland, Romania, um, Saudi Arabia, Israel, South Africa, all around. So these are some major markets. Can I stop you there, Todd, and ask you a question? You know, you you said that so lightly. You know, we decided to just do it in one fell swoop. Um, You make it sound so easy to do things in one fell swoop versus in a more um, incremental way. How does that happen? What does that look like from from an internal perspective? One felt swoop isn't, like I said, we're very much a debateful culture. So there were debates in many different forums throughout 2015, starting early in 2015, even late 2014, um, about should we launch in, you know, rest of world, go after all these other markets? Should we do it all at once? Should we do it incrementally? Uh, Etc. So th- there was a lot of fun raging. You know, we we love debate in Netflix. We don't shy away from it, and very open debate, and it gets very lively. And you want your meetings not to be dull. You know, um, keeping your jaw propped up so you don't appear like you're falling asleep. Meetings, but our meetings should be dramatic, true to the entertainment that we're purveyors of. We try to make our meetings interesting before going after meaty topics, and that was a meaty topic for a long time. And another thing is, it's not like we could have done this any time, because as I mentioned before, the whole global licensing issue, before we got into originals, before we made some good progress around getting some global licenses done around content, it would have been impossible to launch globally at the same time, because we wouldn't have had the catalog to do it. But what happened is, we've made such good progress um, producing shows that seem to have um, captured the imaginations of many people around the world, that now was an opportunity to do that. And the debate was, should we do that? Should we learn and iterate? And that was so clear to our culture that we decided to launch entirely globally. So I did make it sound easy, but it isn't easy. And right now, you know, where we have just the beginning has happened. There's one thing to flip on the switch and go, ah, we're in 190 countries now. There's another thing to really progress and get great in all those countries. So, And that's our goal. So we have our jobs cut out for us for years to come about keep on maturing, keep on making it better in all those markets and many more that I just mentioned. Thank you. That's, that's really great. And I interrupted you. You were actually telling us about the implications of being global. Yeah, so 
there's lots of implications. There's a few of them. I, you know, let me expand on something I said before, and then I could take us into other areas. So something I was like, talking about before is just there's lots of storytelling, great storytelling going on around the world, and a lot of places are deprived, and you know, people are deprived of that because in the old linear model, unless you got whether it was just broadcast TV or whether you go over to cable TV, even if you have a couple of hundred channels, unless you can create enough broad enough appeal for certain content, it's not worth creating a channel and putting it into your schedule because there are only so many hours in a day that you could slot into. There's a show at 8, there's a show at 9. But with Internet TV, obviously with a Netflix and others in this ecosystem, you can play anything anytime you want. It doesn't matter. There is no 8 p.m., 8 a.m. You watch it at 8 p.m. You can finish watching it at 8 a.m. and whenever you want to. So there's not that preciousness of slots in a broadcasting or cable schedule. So with that, you can open up a lot of the great storytelling from wherever. Sure, maybe only 2% of the U.S. population is interested in amazing Bollywood content, but they're out there, and it's 2% of, you know, 300 million people in the U.S., and you know, a couple of hundred million more in Europe and so forth, and let them get at that. Let them get at, you know, I'll give you a great example of something I'm excited about. One show we did in 2015, which we're working on producing another season now, is a show called Narcos, and it did really well for us, but Narcos is the epitome of a global show, because here it is, um, Narcos, we're working with producers from the U.S. and Europe and South America, we're taking the biggest um, movie star in Brazil, um, Wagner Mora. We're working with the biggest director in Brazil who created the show, show, Jose Padilla. And those guys made these a million Brazilian films that hardly anyone was exposed to. They did both elite squad films, etc. And so here it is, a film, I mean a TV show, Narcos, shot entirely in Colombia. Three quarters of it is in Spanish, and yet it becomes this global hit. And many millions of people in the U.S. are watching Narcos, which blows my mind because, like I said, I used to be a film critic, and I'd review sometimes amazing foreign films. But Americans don't like to read, and you'd get this really small niche market on some incredible movies that would come out because they had subtitles. Now we have Narcos, which is, like I said, three-quarters of it's in Spanish, one-quarter in English. People are reading subtitles. People are forgetting they're reading subtitles because it's a compelling story. And here's a truly global production of something that spans, you know, people are watching it all over the place. There's all kinds of things, whether it's mass entertainment like Narcos or smaller, more niche entertainment, that we could start spreading instantaneously around the world and find storytellers, whether they're based um, Europe, North America, South America, Africa, doesn't matter, Asia. We're going to find great storytellers and share their stories around the world. And that's a very much a paradigm shift that makes us very excited about going global. And I can keep on going on the global story. Once again, I'm going to get a little more oxygen in my lungs. And then if you <laughs> permit me, Kate, I can tell you more about what makes me excited about global. Well, I, you know, I, I think about this idea of, um, the, I think Narcos is a great example. And, um, you know, the more you talk, Todd, the more that I'm really thinking about um, all the things we take for granted from, you know, we used to take for granted, I guess, from, you know, my show's on at eight o'clock, I missed it, you know, or I can't watch tonight because I'm, you know, to um, to the kinds of content we can access, you know, to the way people are choosing. Um, and, and so this idea of global storytelling is 
very important. And I, I wonder, and I, I, I need to think more about this myself, I think, but I'd love to hear you talk for just a moment about, you know, if we can, if we can tune in to the stories of the world in the languages of the world with subtitles, if we can, if we can have um, access to points of view far different than our, our own context for life, you know, what do you think are the implications for us as a global society? You know, is there, what are the implications for us as citizens of a world versus of a nation or, or a state or so on? Yeah, I mean, this goes to the core of the Internet and outside of Internet TV even, but if you expand it just to the Internet, the Internet has pulled together the world more than ever. Being able to get information about anything that's going on globally so instantaneously being able to, you know, for most people, you know, some countries have stronger restrictions about, you know, their Internet laws and so forth. But for most nations around the world and for the majority of the world population, and this Internet becomes such a utility for a larger and larger percentage of the global population, then, you know, the profound thing that it creates of being able to access all that information is powerful. It's it's really shifting how th- how people think about the world, how the world becomes a smaller place. I think in a good way, you know, a tighter place, a more unified place. And there's a lot of hiccups around you know around this, and a lot of challenges. But I tend to embrace the much more positive upside of where the internet is taking us versus the hiccups. The hiccups around privacy, the hiccups around you know protecting your information and so forth. These things are concerns. These things are being dealt with. But the upside is, is, is truly amazing. You know, it's awe-inspiring about where this might take us. And so where Netflix plays in is just from your entertainment perspective. Most of what's on Netflix is entertainment. We have very serious, edifying documentaries that we do and produce. But we also have pure, silly, goofy, escapist things. We're the mm-hmm. same company that can bring you our first two Netflix original movies that came out. Um, it's fun to think about them because they couldn't be more different. We have our first movie that came out is the critically acclaimed Beast of No Nation, directed by Terry Fukunaga, the guy who did the first season of True Detective. Mm-hmm. And it's a serious um, meditation and drama about child soldiers in Africa. It's very dramatic and very exciting and, frankly, brutal and sometimes difficult to watch, but beautifully made. And then on the other side, our second original title, is a goofy, escapist, Adam Sandler, Western parody that is check your brains at the door, very entertaining. And so, and that could be more different. And some people are going to hate one and love the other and vice versa. And it doesn't matter because what we're going after is diversity. So it's not just about edification and all the lofty things can do. It's sometimes just the escapist, fun, entertaining things that we can all bond over and the Adam Sandler movie, Ridiculous Six, we're getting tons of viewers in, you know, South America, Germany, etc. Because we all want to escape our problems sometimes. Yeah. Well, as you're as you're saying that, what what flashed to my mind was our own Netflix screen, where, um, you know, my my college age children have their own, uh, you know, the, the icon that says, you know, is who's watching, and and will tune you into things you would like, and I. I think it's just um, amazing, really, to, to to take in all of what's happening um, in this in this uh, industry, and also more more broadly, what's happening 
globally with thanks to the internet and thanks to the ideas and determination and creativity of, of you and others um, in, at Netflix and in other places. You know, we're, we're really just a minute to close here. And I'd love to, um, first I want to say thank you, Todd. I think that I know how incredible it is to do this show, right? As you've had this huge announcement, you probably are the busiest person at Netflix or among them um, right now. I want to just give you a chance to, to, to say something encouraging to people out there who are grappling with their own uh, disruption. Just a quick word of advice. Um, if you have clear thinking and a clear vision of how you think you can benefit people with your ideas, then persisting is super important. And being open to challenges of those around you, being tenacious is one thing, but being stubborn is another. You don't want to be stubborn in your ideas. You don't want to hold to them like a dog holding onto a pants cuff with no real logic except you want to keep on biting into that pants cuff. You want to bite into that because there's a clear reason and have other cha- and open yourself up to others challenging your thinking. And that's super important. And that's when I was talking about earlier about a debateful culture. Opening one up to being part of a debateful culture is, you know, I couldn't emphasize the importance of that more. Todd, you've been so helpful and so inspiring. Thank you and have a great week. Thank you, Kate. Take care. That was really fun. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Kate Ebner, next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.